0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of The Remnant Podcast, which is part of Dispatch Media, which also puts out the Morning Dispatch newsletter, The Goldberg File, and soon to be many other important products. I hate calling them products, but it kind of makes sense. Um, and uh, this week's episode, or today's episode of The Remnant, is brought to you by Ernest. More about them in a little bit, but... So today we have a very special guest. We have, according to some out there, um, and I'm open to correction, maybe we'll get David Bonson on here to explain the theological, metaphysical stuff to me better, but my understanding is that in some Gnostic sects, the demiurge, it's not the creator of the universe, who is the almighty, but rather it is some sort of lesser force that creates a tainted and flawed world that is really the... In some ways, the source of all that is twisted and bent in the crooked timber of humanity and why we can't have nice things. And fortunately, by whatever name you want to put to him, Mephistopheles, Beelzebub, Aquaman lover, uh, we have one of the latest uh, and greatest hires for the dispatch, uh, my
2: friend uh, David French. David, welcome. Well, thank you. And there's something inconsistent between Aquaman lover, which is virtuous, and uh-huh. Beelzebub, which is not. They both fit under the rubric of wrong. <laughs> oh. Oh. Okay. Okay.
0: Um, no. Uh, great to have you here. You are... Your first official day after a interminable period of unemployment of 48 hours... Yes. Uh, ...was on Monday, yesterday, and now you are... Uh, I believe we're calling you a senior writer? Senior, senior editor, editor. Senior I apologize. Come on, at, Jonah. I know. It's been a long... <laughs> six months. Senior editor at the uh, Dispatch and... The full list of your responsibilities we're going to be working out in the days and weeks ahead, but we are delighted to have
2: you and welcome aboard. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be aboard. Uh, It's, uh, um, you know, I'm just thrilled to get to work with you and Steve and get to know Toby. You know, he's one of these guys that uh, you've always heard great things about and never met him. That's one of the things about uh, their advantages and disadvantages of living in Tennessee is you, one of the advantages is you kind of get to see the beltway from the 30,000 feet uh, right. altitude. The disadvantage is there's a lot of people that you hear good things about that you just never run across.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and that's true. It's just sort of our line of work too, particularly since the dawn of the internet. It's such an intimate medium in some ways that mm-hmm. you are you feel like because you've exchanged a couple of emails with somebody or DMs on Twitter right. that they become your friends. And yeah. sometimes they actually do. Um, in the early days of National Review Online, there were a bunch of people who became sort of longtime friends? Who were just sort of my over the transom experts? I had like an air power. I would call. I'd always call them guys. Yes, I remember that. So I had a Middle East guy who actually turned out to be a very good friend of mine. Um, but I had an air power guy, I had a military guy. I had all these different guys, and you know, you, you had sort of relationships with them because you found them really useful. But um, but then you actually don't get to meet them for sometimes years at a time. Yeah, and it's yeah, kind of weird. Toby's not that. Toby, for the listeners who don't know, is the third partner in the troika of the founders of The Dispatch. Um, he's been a friend of mine for a very long time. He was an executive at the American Enterprise Institute. Before that, he was a dean of admissions at Harvard Law School. Which Pretty key is, position. Yeah. It was funny. When he first came to AEI like 12 years ago, before I came back as a scholar or a fellow or whatever you call me, um, I remember introducing him to people and they were just horrified. It was because it was like, you know how long the conservative movement has been working to get conservatives in places like the admissions department at Harvard Law School. Yeah. Like AI doesn't need another smart right winger. We really need a right winger over there. But well, he served uh, under Kagan, right? Yeah, served under Kagan, and um, and the the head of the admissions committee was Elizabeth Warren, right? Yeah. Um, and I won't speak for him about how he judges people, but I, but I do find that lots of people
2: like Kagan. As a person, uh, a great deal. Well, I was going to say that reminds me of a a little bit of an obscure piece of Supreme Court history because um, Harvard Law School before Caden came, which is that's when I was there, was terrible. Yeah. Um, The atmosphere for conservatives was miserable. This was the era of the shout down, the booing, the hissing, the, you know, I mean, the the kinds of messages that I would get in just like on paper, written out, scrawled out and sent to me in my inbox because we had no email back then people would call conservatives, employers, future employers, and try to get them to, you know, not hire them or fire them. I mean, this was sort of like pre-cancel culture. Yeah, Cancel culture without Twitter. It was really, really toxic. Then Elena Kagan comes in, and I remember there was this moment where, if I, uh, where she went to a Federalist Society meeting, I believe, and said, I love the Federalist Society. She hired a more intellectually diverse faculty. And so when she was nominated for the Supreme Court, uh, there were people who are going to younger conservative lawyers who just graduated from HLS and saying we need a full-throated opposition to Elena Kagan mm-hmm. and a lot of them were saying no don't think so Yeah, you know she actually made the school a pretty humane place for conservatives and yeah there's more nuance and there's also more nuance to her jurisprudence um, if you see a 7-2 uh, first amendment case odds are she's one of the seven yeah yeah she so yeah there Obviously, I disagree with a lot of her jurisprudence, but it just reminds me that there's sort of more to the story with her.
0: Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that there's less of the story to Sotomayor and more <laughs> to the story with Kagan. But anyway, this is not how we planned on beginning. Right. We played some scary music in the beginning because, again, listeners who are maybe not necessarily too deep in the weeds, though one of the things we love about uh, remnant listeners is their willingness to get weedy is that uh, you are the source for all that is wrong in Western civilization, yes. according to a number of, of smart or uh, putatively smart people. Yes, um, yes. Uh, so where does that... I, I have to admit, I have not continued reading, you know, what's the one past tertiary? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it keeps going, right? right. There's a half-life to it. And right. apparently now you are the champion of the forces of moral relativism. That's sort of where I checked out. Like, yeah. Like it's sort of, you know, the... the Air Bud, the first Air Bud movie, was pretty good. Um, <laughs> by the time the, all the puppies are talking and they're in space, I'm like, yeah, I don't need to watch this anymore. That's sort of how I feel
2: about a lot of the stuff. Don't forget about Satanism. Has anyone accused him of Satanism? Yeah. Who's accused you Well, of? they haven't accused me of Satanism. They've accused me of being an apologist for Satanism. Okay, okay. Uh, or an enabler. I mean, I'm not saying no, so much an apologist, but an enabler of Satanism. Um, uh, an enabler of all bad things, right? Because liberalism is value neutral or – Because liberty, things. because freedom is no longer a virtue in and of itself. It's right. now, according to some, a virtue only when people exercise their freedom in a virtuous manner. Right. And the, and, and if they don't, then, then the blame isn't so much with the person who exercises their freedom poorly. The blame is with the liberty itself. Right, right, right. right. And, and that's where we part ways, really dramatically. <laughs> um, Side
0: note, have you ever actually looked at Satanism as a phenomenon? It's I, What I find fascinating about it is that they insist that basically Satan got a raw deal and his bad press, and actually they believe in good things too, Right? kind of takes all the fun out of being a <laughs> Satanist, right? I mean, it's like you would think like, the whole point of being a Satanist is like to like own evil, but instead they're... It's another form of this sort of romantic, anti-establishment thing where they like, they they think it's rebellious, right? But it's also believes in good things too,
2: right? Right. It's kind of like it really is having your cake and eating it. Well, and as way. with all isms, I think there's like different strands. So I think there's actually this group now, and I, I can't remember. It's not the Church of Satan, but maybe the Satanic Temple or something that is not actually doesn't actually believe in Satan. Uh huh. They don't have a belief in anything supernatural at all. They have adopted that name sort of as a as a massive troll. I see. And then use that name to get a ton of attention and they'll seek to put a monument up in a public space or have – and what they really are is more akin to like the cult of reason uh-huh. from the French Revolution. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean even Satanism contains multitudes. Um, You ever watch Parks and Rec? Yes. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah.
0: My One of my favorite episodes in parks is it so chimes in with my hatred of pragmatism is uh, philosophical pragmatism. Um, there's a cult that once ran Pawnee, Indiana in the 1970s, <laughs> and they worship uh, a f- magma-spewing lizard god named uh, Zorp, and they constantly believe that, that he's going to come back and melt the planet, and then he doesn't, and then they have to do the math again to figure out when he's going to come back. And most of this is from an... Uh, Esoteric reading of like some management book or something like right. that. Right. Anyway, <laughs> but they call themselves the Reasonableists. Yes. <laughs> I <remember.
2: laughs> because I remember
0: they think that that way no one would dare criticize them because no one wants to seem unreasonable. Yeah. So where are we on this? Yeah. So where are we on this? Is
2: is is team? Ma- is there still a popular front against French, or is it starting to break up? I would not say it's a popular front against French. It's more than a- it's getting to. Let's just say the appeal of the anti-Frenchists, to use the phrase from Spinal Tap, growing more selective. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Um, so I think what happened is this was sort of a multi-phase thing. So, you know, first they write the first things folks write this thing called "Against the Dead Consensus." It was sort of a broadside against the dead consensus, <laughs> against the you know, which was the old school Buckley conservatism. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. And and they and it doesn't really go anywhere I right. mean, you know people read it and but it doesn't really generate I think what they wanted to generate but this being the modern era when Sorab dropped the diss track mm-hmm. you know when he he personalized it then it kind of exploded to an extent that when I, I remember when I first read it I, I you know I thought well I've got to respond to this just because it's directed at me but then I had no idea it was just going to detonate the way mm-hmm. it detonated and I think a lot of it early on was really a proxy battle about Trumpism mm-hmm. and and because what he did is he put together sort of a straw man version of me and a straw man version of Trump and pitted us against each other. And and so what he was in that circumstance was like what I would call a deep version of Christian Trumpism. Mm-hmm. So the shallow tr- Christian Trumpism is just purely transactional, bad guy doing good things. I'll give him a pass. The deep version. King David was flawed too. King David was flawed too. The (laughs) deep version is, no, actually, not necessarily a bad guy. Actually, you know, he was—he's an instrument of social cohesion. He's Mm -hmm. a, you know, all of these things that uh, would be virtues unrecognizable to Trump himself. So it really blew up because it wasn't just liberal versus illiberal; it was Trump versus anti-Trump, and this whole thing. And sort of everyone imported their own beefs into it. Then when the debate happened, I think it became clear that for Sorab at least, the Trump part of it was kind of to the side. It wasn't the core of it. And so immediately when Trump's not the core of it, it's going to sort of shrink in its mm-hmm. appeal. And is much more sort of, no, really, actually, when he talks about Constantine, he really yeah. likes Constantine. And then it sort of began to devolve to the third stage, which is well, now we're going to have um, a bunch of people on Claremont publications just writing screeds uh, against liberalism itself in sort of blunt uh, and and often highly deceptive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the moral relativism point comes in. Um, you know, it's sort of like I guess if you live long enough. You'll live to see yourself called virtually anything and everything. But I have to say the absolute last thing I thought I would ever be called in my entire life is a moral relativist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm constantly fending off claims of being a moralist. Right, right. You know, constantly. But but we're right now at a stage where I think it's a small group of mainly Catholic thinkers who are really circling their wagons around that there's just something wrong with liberalism itself. Something wrong with the entire construct of the unalienable rights outlined in the Declaration. And I think a lot of people who would be sympathetic to Sorab just because he was articulating a more sophisticated version of Trumpism are now sort of backing away and saying, No, nah, I didn't sign on for this exactly. Right. I was more thinking, I just want this guy to win in twenty twenty and I want his opponents to be humiliated. That was sort of more the the stage one version of it. Yeah, I mean I mean as someone who
0: has spent a lot of time in the, the deep, deep weeds of conservative intellectual history, I wrote the forward to this book, ISI, a few years ago, reissued What is Conservatism, which is this famous collection of essays. It's got Hayek in there. It's got Buckley. It's um, got Bo- Bozell, the, the elder. Yeah. And it's basically this argument between the sort of It's, the, it's, it's sort of the Federalist Papers' For fusionism. Yeah. And, um, um, and so part of the thing is, is that what I find so remarkable about all of this is how how much amnesia is going on among these people. I mean, like, yeah. there is nothing that Saurabh is arguing of any major consequence that isn't what Bozell Sr. argued in the 1960s, where... And they found... You know, the Bozell Sr., for people who don't know, was Bill Buckley's brother-in-law, um, and at one point... He basically splits off from the National Review crowd and starts a magazine called Triumph. Is that what it was, Jack? Yeah, Jack is nodding. And it was the exact same argument mm-hmm. that you know virtue needs to be coerced, that um, you need a system that, reinv- that cares about everybody's soul, whether they choose differently or not. And it was the exact same argument. And I've always argued that Frank Meyer's fusionism stuff actually doesn't work that great as a Coherent philosophical construct, right? But as an explication of sort of where our culture is and what our cultural norms are and what liberalism actually applied means, yeah, it's pretty spot on, right? Yeah. And and this is something that um I'm, oh, I'm going to forget his name, but there's a great essay I wrote about it in the G file about a month ago. Um, wrote for National Affairs um, about the differences between liberal theory and and liberalism applied, and right. like, when we talk about liberal nations. Canada, United States, England, France. We're talking about classical liberalism here for people who maybe missed it. Um, there are all sorts of things that we do as a country that actually can't be sustained by Locke, right? like yeah. uh, federalism, a bill of rights. There's a lot of that stuff that can't be found in liberal theory, um, or at least in the or- original liberal theory, but is at the heart of what we think of as liberalism. and. So the irony, I think, is is that you have all of these nationalists who say no, we have to really emphasize culture. We have to emphasize that we are a people. This is yeah. part of the argument that Richard makes. And the problem is, our culture is liberal. Yeah. We are a liberal people, right? And like our li- our institutions come out of England, and all of the stuff that we call liberalism started long before the theory came online. And so there really is this weird kind of you know I, I don't I, I I hate anti-Catholicism. I'm I'm a huge defender of the Catholic Church. But the old arguments about oh, you really worship the pope in Rome and you want to impose these foreign ways, you know, the, right. the English used to talk about the Spanish. It's kind of what they're talking about because our liberal culture does not recognize what they're talking about as part of our culture.
2: Yeah. So I had two debates with Sora. The the one that was sort of the most hyped was the the melee at CUA, right? Which I wish I'd like copyrighted that phrase <laughs> <laughs> went everywhere. But um that that one was the very tense, very Explosive debate, and then we a week later had a much calmer, really more of a panel discussion because Charles Kessler from Claremont was there, and he's very congenial and so it was much more of a panel discussion and uh, the second one got much more into sort of the high level philosophical divides, whereas mm-hmm. the Catholic University I was really trying to press Saurabh and what does this mean what right. you are saying and he was trying to make you just a bad guy he right? was just trying to he was just trying to make me he was just trying to insult me yeah. time and time again. Then the second one was what? what is this really – and and Professor Philip Munoz who, uh-huh. at Notre Dame, who's a good guy. Great guy, yeah. great guy. He – right towards the end, he asked this absolutely key question to me, which um, is something I should have thought of right from the get-go to to start. And he said, I think part of the difference between David and Sorab is that David sees pluralism as an inherent American – Characteristic, Right. And Soreb sees pluralism as a solvable problem mm-hmm. that I don't see any way around America being a diverse pluralistic society. I think right. it was de- designed from the ground up in that to be that because the founders look at the Eastern seaboard of the US, which is comprised of all the major combatants, basically, theologically, certainly, of the wars of religion. Right. And said, how are we going to live together? Right. Because they certainly didn't do a great job at it in Europe. Right. As evidenced by the fact that they're here, <laughs> many of them are here, and so how do we figure out how to live like this uh, and to live together and build a nation? And that's why I think of Federalist Ten from Madison is one of the key Federalist papers talking about, you know, how do you deal with the violence of faction? You don't, you don't deal with it by removing liberty. You don't deal with it by trying to inculcate total unanimity and opinion. But you enlarge the republic. You it's, you know, the thousand – let the thousand flowers bloom and some of the flowers you're not going to like. right Some of them you're not going to like. Some of them you're going to disagree with and you're always going to run around this great country and you're going to find here and there and everywhere groups of people doing things that they shouldn't do. Yeah. And I think that one of the problems that we have with Twitter is this has always been a reality, always, and, but Twitter allows this nut-picking phenomenon where you can take this one thing. Like drag queen story hour, you, and if it's not drag queen story hour, it's something else. And say, look at this. Right. Look at and now that's not saying that there aren't problems in this country, but the and real, for the record, you would not send your kids to drag queen. Never. Story no. <laughs> but there and but the real problems of this country are not little obscure things you have to pick up on Twitter. Right. They're things that you see and experience in your everyday life, like the, uh, you know, the opioid crisis, for example. Um, and and we just have this ability now to isolate these things that are really wacky and, and then elevate them as the symbol of our decline. Right. And, and it, it re- causes and creates sort of a sense of nonstop panic yeah. amongst some folks.
0: I mean, that's the, that's the weird irony is that, that social media is nationalizing. Right? Yeah. It, it treats the entire country as if it's we live in one tiny small town and, and it drives people in small towns when their neighbors live the wrong way. But yeah. the reality is, is that like drag queen story hour, if it's three thousand miles away, there was there were bad things going on three thousand miles away in the nineteenth century too. Yeah. Just like you didn't know about them, so it right. didn't really matter, you know. It's like if if a drag queen falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, you know, yeah. I mean, it's that kind of problem. Um, all right, so we should get off of this, but maybe we'll come back to it because if if there's one thing this podcast stands for, it's it's self indulgent eggheadery. Um, <laughs> so we're recording this on Tuesday morning. And um, because we were in me- like literally in meetings all day planning the vast empire to be, which is the dispatch, I have not been super on the news, but uh, Bill Taylor, the diplomat, is that his name? Do you remember? Oh, in um, oh, the Ukraine. The Ukraine stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He's testifying today, so this may be another. I mean, this is one of the great problems: is that like I did a great podcast with Ken Pollock last week about the Middle East, and
2: that was a great podcast. Yeah, it was, I thought it was a
0: very valuable kind of thing. And uh, thank you. And uh, he's great. And and at the end of the day, they announced a quote unquote ceasefire. Turns out it really wasn't a ceasefire, right. but just news happens so fast that yeah. it makes stuff feel antiquated. But um, where do you see the the current state of play? in the the grand saga that is impeachment or impeachment
2: light or impeachment inquiry or whatever You know, it's it. funny. I feel like the this is almost like a reverse Watergate mm-hmm. in the sense – and I, I, this is not an analogy original to me. I, you may have used it in the remnant. I can't remember. But what, ha, what if the Watergate tapes came out first? Right. Um, so the transcript, which is the actual president of the United States, engaging in an actual – Quid pro quo. That's everything. It's right there. I wrote about this right when it happened. If I was as a litigator, if I couldn't walk a jury through the five successive paragraphs of rest, you know, we've been very good to you. There hasn't always been reciprocity to us. Number one. Number two, I want javelins. Number three, investigate the server. Number four, sure. And then number five, another thing, investigate the Bidens. Right. If I couldn't walk through that and establish a quid pro quo by a preponderance or a beyond a reasonable doubt, I'd just hang up my litigator tie. Yeah. Um and it was right right there. And then the consistent statement, this was beautiful, this was perfect, is just pure absurdity. And so I feel like you've kind of got the cake mm-hmm. and the rest of it is what is the icing going to look like? Yeah how widespread was this was this a one you know it's one thing if this was a one off conversation where the president very impulsively did stuff but what about all the things that Giuliani was doing as he was running around and then who was he associating with who were these people you know these ukrainians who've been indicted what was their role but all of that is sort of peripheral to the president of the united states in an official diplomatic call called for a desperate independent ally who needed American military assistance to, one, investigate a wild, crazy conspiracy theory involving a non-existent server, and number two, to investigate political opponents. That's the thing. That's the thing. And everything else is sort of the extra flavoring for the thing.
0: So the the server thing, which I'm becoming kind of obsessed with. Because, I am too. <laughs> because um, – Mulvaney, who I actually kinda liked personally and I know a little bit, and um I always thought he was, you know, he is not exactly um General Mattis. Right. But I always thought he was probably a net benefit for the Republic having him in there than not yeah. having him in there. Um but his press conference last week, which um uh in much the same way the maiden voyage of the Titanic did not go well, (laughs) right? I mean, it, uh, uh, but he did one thing that was actually very, very clever, which he has not really been called on. And he did it again, even in his cleanup stuff on on Fox News Sunday, where he just basically says over and over again, you know, he says basically like, did I hear the president mention the corruption associated with the DNC server? Um, Yes, I did. And yeah. everyone, oh, okay, well, you did hear that, so that's a concession, but at the same time, that's a legitimate thing, because he's investigating corruption, and the DNC server is part of corruption. And you want someone to do, like, one of those old-fashioned record scratches, right? Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, 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 the DNC server thing is a bat guano crazy conspiracy
2: theory. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, and I, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with why the press doesn't make a bigger deal out of it. I am too, actually. I'm, I really am. Because, you know, at first when I read the transcript... I read the first the fa- I have a favor though you know that first paragraph where Trump says I I want the favor, and it was obviously a reference to 2016. And I kind of gave him a pass for it initially to say right. because look there is a legitimate investigation right. to be had about the Steele dossier for example right. how was that created what did Obama officials do in interacting with foreign governments and trying to gather information. Some of that was legitimate. Some of it may not have been legitimate. There's legitimate things to know. So I just sort of like said, okay, I'm going to give him a pass on that and focus like a laser on the Biden situation for which I see no justification. Right. No, that, and me too. It's was like I, I saw CloudStrike. It was like, oh, that's one
0: of those things that I either forgot what the details were or I never bothered to look into, but I assume that's okay. Right. And it turns out, no, it's no. nonsense. Well, and,
2: and I knew when I saw the word CrowdStrike. Because that has echoes of, I mean, that even starts to veer into the Seth Rich stuff, right, right, right. and it's and, almost Pizzagate. Yeah, yeah. It, well, some of it is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and then I was had twenty four hours to think about it, and which sort of goes to our our dispatch model of we we need That's to right. pre- press pause and like really think these things through. And when I had twenty four hours to think about it, it's like whoa. This is the president of the United States running an independent diplomatic operation based on a conspiracy theory that when you hear him sort of talk about it is incredibly jumbled. I mean it isn't even as coherent as some of the stuff you'll find on a Reddit thread. It's almost as if he believes that a a server will disprove the whole theory of Russian collusion and or contain Hillary's missing emails. Right. Um, It's just completely jumbled in his mind and it goes back to – I think one of the most important sort of early disclosures in all of this is when Trump's former uh, Homeland Security Advisor uh, came out and he said, we had this thing where we would debunk a conspiracy theory and Rudy and perhaps others would come in and revive it. Yeah. And this was going back and forth. And, you know, that war, an internal war against a crazy conspiracy theory. Uh, I think is one of the underlying stories of this whole thing, and it's not a one-off in a lead-up to a phone call. Yeah, it's a months-long campaign that ultimately ended up involving Rudy running around the uh, the world conducting conspiracy-based diplomacy. Yeah, in the beginning of the administration, there were all these stories about
0: how Bannon or Bannon-esque figures, you know, or maybe even some people who didn't have hooves and bat wings. Um, coming, sneaking in around Mattis and McMaster right. and these guys and giving, you know, gateway pundit style nonsense to the yeah. president. And the president has this, this profound ability to believe any arguments that he thinks make, cast him in a positive light, right? I mean, like someone got him Kurt Schlichter's column about how the Kurds weren't with us at Normandy. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, like, that person should be fired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, but at least that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just a dumb argument, right? Mm-hmm. But so for listeners to understand, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong or if you want to take the ball, that's fine. But the argument is, is that the FBI never searched, quote unquote, never searched the DNC server themselves. They contracted out this company called Cloudstrike, which allegedly has a Ukrainian co-owner. Turns out he's not Ukrainian. He's a Russian-American, but okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that CloudStrike, rather than actually take the server, did what a lot of these forensic kind of things do and basically copied it totally. Imaging, right? yeah. It did a digital imaging of the entire thing and then ran a thing on that. So they didn't need the physical server. And, but Trump believes that this was part of the cover-up and that the actual server was then absconded with and brought to Ukraine. And it's sort of like the crate at the end of Indiana Jones, right? (laughs) And if they could just find that, all the answers are there because it turns out that the Ukrainians framed the Russians to make it look like the Russians were in favor of Trump when in reality, Ukrainians outsmarted the Russians and were in favor of Hillary. Is that basically
2: right? That's basically it. And then this is also... You know where this? It has it has many tentacles. So that's that's one version. Another version is that uh, connects some of this with the Seth Rich theory, mm-hmm. which is that it was Seth Rich who sent the um, you know who did the ha- the DNC hack and right. sent it to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, and that could be proven if you had access to the server or other versions of to the laptop. Um, and and there was a
0: Ukrainian. Woman, Ukrainian American woman who worked for the DNC, who apparently figures heavily in the Ron Johnson version of this, right, right, Right.
2: yeah, and so, you know, and and like a lot of conspiracy theories, there are, there are Ukrainian contacts with American law enforcement that occurred during the 2016 election, and you know, Andy McCarthy has detailed these, Mm -hmm. and so there's there are, um, you know, some of the information about Manafort, for example so you have things where there were communications between Americans and Ukrainians and but this sort of elaborate story and and I think one of the reasons why Trump is so drawn to the mega conspiracy theory is he just you can tell he just psychologically has not acknowledged that the Russians intervened on his behalf right because if if he does that I think in his mind it diminishes his glorious victory that there's an asterisk next to his glorious victory and in the same way, he can't quite seem to acknowledge that he lost the popular vote. Right. Um, he any asterisk to the glorious victory he cannot sort of psychologically tolerate, and so I think he's really drawn to this as an explanation of, no, really, look at the odds I overcame. Right. I overcame Ukrainians and working with the Obama administration to enter, to meddle in the election against me. Right. And, and which so is why th- today he called it a lyn- the impeachment thing a lynching. Right. Right. And and so I think that that's part of the appeal here is that he can sort of tie it all into a bow of the heroic Trump overcomes everything right. as, as opposed to he he really sort of um, – he really w- was like the camel through the eye of the needle to win this incredibly narrow victory where six, seven, eight, nine, ten things going one way or the other would have changed that. Yeah. And so it's – there's an obvious appeal to him because he just wants – this total total vindication and it, there's an uh, a, a lot of people out there sort of in the right wing world who have their own story of 2016 that is um, in, you know the way the sort of the a big part of the left embraced the steel dossier version of Donald Trump right. There's sort of this corresponding right wing conspiracy theory that sort of reverse steel dossier mm-hmm. of the total massive, Unlawful entrapment operation of a wholly and completely innocent Trump campaign, right, on behalf of American intelligence to undo the results of an election that people are really, really invested in. Yeah, so maybe because you follow this stuff, I was always kind of
0: a little hands office on the hands offish on the whole Mueller investigation. I uh-huh. wanted to go forward. I thought Mueller was an honorable right. guy. Um, I thought there were legitimate things to investigate. I think I was much more skeptical about the Trump collusion stuff until the Trump Tower meeting came out. I remember writing it in National right. Reviews, like, look, I mean, one of the predicates for believing that this might actually have happened uh, has now been established. We now know that they wanted to work with the Russians. Right. right. Like, you know, what is it? Means, motive, and opportunity, yeah, right? Yeah, you yeah. know? Um and but it turns out I still believe that they were more hapless and incompetent than yeah. sinister and I still think the worst thing that Trump did on the collusion front was say, "Hey Russia, if you're listening, you know." <laughs> uh, but um, um, just if you can sort of explain why the 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 hard right conspiracy theory that this was all the deep state doesn't actually work,
2: right? Well, so let me, so- which is not to exonerate Brennan
0: right. and everybody for everything that they did, right? But this idea that somehow this was all an attempt to derail Trump's presidency
2: and yet the timeline just doesn't work. Well, yeah, so there's a couple of things. First, let me begin with this. I think by the time the Inspector General report comes out, you know, this long-awaited IG report about uh, the fight, the Carter Page files, there's going to be evidence of wrongdoing. Right. I think the Steele dossier, I remember being offered elements of the Steele dossier towards the closing of the 2016. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. People said, "I have documents for you." What are, What do they say? And I and I, and I just immediately just didn't pass the yeah. smell test. And plus, I didn't have the resources at NR to independently verify existence right. of a meeting in Prague or a, you know what kind of tape. But now that you work at the Dispatch. But now, ah. but now, <laughs> uh, I cannot wait to fly off to Prague. But, um, you know, it just didn't t- pass the smell test and. And so there were elements of this that, from the get-go, just seemed off. Um, and so I, I'm entirely open to the notion that there was cutting of corners, perhaps mm-hmm. even outright malice, and some of the stuff, especially dealing with Papadopoulos and and Carter Page. Mm-hmm. Both of those, there are circumstances around there that that just seem a little off or strange. And one of them, it turns out, maybe that Papadopoulos just kind of made some stuff up. Right about conversations he'd had with people which raised alarms and so essentially the, the theory is that this Carter Page and Papadopoulos stuff was so that, that, that that's the origin of the investigation. That the investigation began with you know the, the the crossfire crossfire hurricane began with some of these tips from Australian diplomat that leads to the opening of an investigation. And that if you can sort of show that the first phase, like the very first elements of this with With Page and Papadopoulos were flawed or corrupt, then everything else you don't have to deal with, right? Because it's all just fruit of the poisonous tree, right? But the problem here is the Page and Papadopoulos were minor figures at all times, right? The core, the heart of the complaint against the Trump campaign involves major figures like Manafort, like. Um, Don Jr., although not formally affiliated with the campaign, longtime friend of Trump, Roger Stone. Mm -hmm. And and I've yet to hear a coherent theory as to why uh, it's the FBI's fault, for example, that Manafort was sharing internal polling data overseas or why Roger Stone was trying to open an independent channel to WikiLeaks or why Don Jr. would say – if that's what it is, I love it, Right. about meeting with a Russian in an email that says, I've got official Russian information. And so- the, each Also, Manafort, just for the record, has worked with some of the most grotesque
0: dictators yes. and evil regimes of the last 30 yes. years. He's yes. a bad
2: person. Yeah. And it's <laughs> almost as if the theory seems to be that if not for the Page Papadopoulos stuff, right. none of this would ever be known. Right. Nobody, even though we'd be conducting a counterintelligence investigation of Russian activity in the election that what? None of this would be known? It, right. it doesn't make any sense. The other thing that about this that has always been a little odd to me, aside from the fact that the core fundamental misconduct on the part of the campaign had nothing to do with Carter Page and nothing to do with George Papadopoulos. The other part of it that's really interesting to me is you hear you have this incredibly nefarious, far-flung plot of entrapment that is not going to come out during the election itself. Right. And is only going to come out after the election when the only way to remove the president is either 25th Amendment, which is not going to happen, or impeachment and conviction when after the election, there was a Republican House and a Republican Senate. And, and people then haughtily have said to me, well, don't you know what fire insurance is, David? <laughs> fire insurance only occurs when there's a fire. But you know what insurance is? Insurance means you're, it's coming to you. Right, you're going to collect if you have the fire. The idea that this was something that you could collect upon if there was the fire is absurd. Um, there, there, it, it. I've never thought. I've never seen a conspiracy to influence an election that didn't leak before the election. What actually leaked before the election? All hurt Hillary. All hurt Hillary. Right. I mean, well, one that one was not a leak. It was the formal announcement by the FBI that they're reopening the email inquiry, which I tend to believe had that announcement not been made, she probably wins.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And then the other one was, you know, people are angry at McCabe, rightly so, for deceiving investigators and improperly leaking to the press. But what did he leak? He leaked something harmful to Hillary. Right. He leaked that the FBI investigation into the Clinton Foundation was still ongoing in defiance of Obama administration wishes. So here you have the FBI making two disclosures, one really really big that dominated the news, another one somewhat big that at least didn't pass unnoticed, harmful to Hillary, but the deep state is unified in its desire to keep Donald Trump from the presidency. You know, I'm very willing to believe that there was misconduct absolutely there has been misconduct yeah. there has been misconduct revealed but i think what we have to do is we have to put it in perspective there was misconduct revealed by the fbi there was misconduct revealed revealed in the trump campaign yeah no it wasn't active collusion but as you said they tried yeah they yeah. tried and i don't understand why people give them a pass on that so i mean also there's just there's this thing like I
0: I hate pulling well, you know, I live inside the beltway, so therefore I know things that right. you don't know, right? And and often people who live outside the beltway tend to know things I don't know. I mean, so right. but but there are things that if you've been, just been doing politics stuff and living amongst these people for this long and just following these kinds of things closely, It becomes very difficult to buy into most conspiracy theories because conspiracies require a level of competence that (laughs) uh, is very hard to find in Washington. And the idea that, like, I mean, I still have memory. You know, my wife worked for DOJ on 9-11 and, you know, was part of Ashcroft's team for for the first four years of the Bush administration. The inability to get the FBI and DOJ... And CIA to work together facing a terrorist threat from people who literally killed friends of theirs, you know, was hard enough. Yeah. The idea that you're going to have these interagency, this interagency cooperation as if everyone belongs to Hydra to break the law is just, it's. People think that, oh, well, that's they, they, they apply Hollywood values to this stuff and they think, well, that's just how it works is they have a cup of coffee together and they, they both don't like Trump. So therefore, they're going to risk their pensions, their careers, uh, maybe risk going to jail to do something incredibly complicated that is almost impossible to keep secret. When everyone thinks that Hillary is going to win anyway. When everyone thinks that Hillary is going to win anyway, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, it just – it. It's that kind of like soft conspiracies, I believe, right? Where like there's one or two people who are doing bad things, but like big conspiracies, they're just really
2: hard to believe. When I've been around a few big sprawling federal investigations in my life, going all the way back to, you know, just even like being on the periphery of stuff when I was interning for the US Attorney in the Organized Crime Division in Boston, back when Organized crime in Boston was a big deal. So I'm sort of floating on the side, like in this meaningless, insignificant intern, looking at a trial play out. That's this, you know, going on to uh, in 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 military, yeah. being involved in some big investigations, you know, and so and then covering and evaluating and and litigating tangentially around big issues like the Tea Party litig- the Tea Party uh, scandal. I sued the federal government over the Tea Party scandal and. And one thing that I have found is that in big sprawling federal uh, investigations, there's typically one or more actors, bad actors. Sure. And so, if you look at if you if you dove deep into, say, a big sprawling mafia investigation, you're going to find a suppression motion here where the government violated the Fourth Amendment rights of uh, these mobsters. You're going to find a suppression motion here where they did this or that. So a lot of these cases, by the time they come to the public, when they're presented for public view, the, ju- the judicial system has already shed them all, of all of the – like a lot of the misconduct has been sort of expunged by legal process. And so then it's sort of fought on a more or less fair basis in court. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you find out prosecutorial misconduct after the fact. Mm-hmm. But, but I am very used to these big federal investigations where here and there – you see misconduct, mm-hmm. incompetence, malice, absolutely. But the idea that this – as you say, this sprawling multi-agency investigation, which get over it, y'all. It was going to happen anyway because of the counterintelligence necessity right. of investigating Russia interference. It was going to happen. It had to happen. But the idea that if I can prove that Papadopoulos – there was something wrong with the Papadopoulos and Page 1-2, that then all of this – all of this should have never come to light. That's, you know, that's just, I mean, you could, you could sit here and you could prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that Papadopoulos was entrapped and that the Carter Page FISA was corrupt to the core. And it doesn't change the fact that Don Jr. took the meeting, that Roger Stone tried to open a channel to WikiLeaks, that Manafort shared polling data with Ukraine. It doesn't change that fact. Right. And it doesn't change the fact that,
0: you know, the Mueller report, which Trump loves to cite as exonerating him, spent hundreds of pages documenting the myriad ways the Russians tried to influence the campaign or, or influence the election. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Mueller was absolutely right when he didn't find evidence of, you know, collusion, but absolutely wrong to document for hundreds of pages the extent to which Russia tried to meddle in the election. And the idea that somehow Mueller just entirely missed The Ukraine, you know, behind the Ukrainians behind the curtain that were really doing all of this. It just, you know, and and but there's this, it's this frame of mind that you get where people get a a sort of literary narrative in their head, and then they reverse engineer from their conclusion the the dots that they're going to connect to make it seem plausible. And I just, it just never never works out that way, right? Right. All right. So we should hear a few words about. Earnest, our our sponsor today, do you have student loans? Refinancing them with Earnest could save you money or lower your monthly payment, and it only takes two minutes to check out your rate online. A little financial relief goes a long way. Student loan refinancing with Earnest can help you pick a monthly payment that fits your budget so you can breathe easy today. If you're still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, Odds are you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. Even if you have refinanced before, with today's low-rate environment, most people can save by refinancing again. Earnest is the easiest way to refinance your student loan, saving, time, saving you time and money. Checking your new rate is easy and fast. To start, complete a few questions online. It only takes about two minutes, and you'll get a personalized rate estimate, all without affecting your credit score. If you qualify... Earnest offers customizable loan terms and no fees. You can even combine private and federal loans. Imagine having one single monthly payment with one low rate. Already refinanced a loan? No problem. You can still be eligible to lower your interest rate again. Plus, the internet loves Earnest customer service. They're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot, so you'll always get the support you need. So, start saving today. Our listeners get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. Go to earnest.com slash dingo today. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, we don't want to get in trouble with the FCC, um, so we should do a little equal time here and talk about the, uh, the Democrats who So my, my position for a very long time is that if you look at the math, Trump can't win, but the Democrats can lose, um, and they're proving me right. <laughs> uh, uh, you and I have been more bullish on Biden, not because we support all his ideas, right. I don't to vote for him, but because we just thought he had a better chance than most, thought, but it does seem like he just cannot take advantage of this moment that is being given to him.
2: Yeah. I mean, rarely have I seen a primary campaign, um, a competitive primary campaign, which the 2016 Democratic primary was not supposed to be, right? <laughs> but turned out to be. But rarely have I seen a truly competitive from the outset primary campaign where one guy could have had it in the palm of his hand yeah. if he was just up to the moment. And so far, he's not been, uh, not even close. And uh, but it's, you know, it's a testament to sort of the latent power of the Obama Biden brand in the Democratic Party that he's still, you know, in the RCP average, either tied or close to tied for first. Um, he's still in a dominant position with black voters, which will help him when the primary goes down to the South. But he's just, he just doesn't seem up for it. Yeah. Uh, and the person who does seem up for it right now, Elizabeth Warren, man, I've got a whole album side <laughs> on. On the comprehensive way in which she is bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not just one thing about her. It's everything from her sort of intersectional stolen valor, mm-hmm. um, to her com- consistently unconstitutional policy ideas to her, I mean, you know, even, even elements of her, or she's frequently just blatantly dishonest. And even, you know, some of the things like if you dig down into her scholarship that made her yeah. the kind of person, you know, your friend Megan McArdle uh, years ago just demolished some of the Elizabeth Warren scholarship on m- medical bankruptcies, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, th- this is somebody who seems chronically addicted to hyping their own biography. Did, did I hear you right? I don't want to mischaracterize you. On the edit the editor's podcast, you said that she – Plagiarized her cookbook. Yeah, oh yeah. This is one of the better. This is one of the better stories. I think this is my. I have two favorite sort of Elizabeth Warren stories. One is that she contributed to a cookbook called Pow Wow Chow, mm-hmm. and apparently plagiarized her entry from a French chef. Um, and so you know, it was an inauthentic expression of um, Native American ancestry and an inauthentic <laughs> recipe. <laughs> Uh, and also the the name Powwow Chow is kind of
0: offensive,
1: it's, right? It's, I mean, you know, to modern
2: ears, I even feel a little bad saying it out loud. Yeah, you know? I mean, if if, if, if I mean, like, it's sort
0: of like if Kansas City Chiefs and the Land of Braves are no good, Pow Wow Chow should not be acceptable, either. right?
2: Right, and you know, and then there's this other my other favorite part is that she apparently claimed to be the first nursing mother to take the New Jersey bar. Yeah, sort of the Jackie Robinson of lactating mothers and. <laughs> And well, you know the the New Jersey bars. Well, you know we've been women have been taking the bar exam for generations, and we just don't keep records on yeah, yeah. nursing and who's not nursing. And you know or since
0: like the eighteen hundreds
2: or nineteen yeah, hundreds, eighteen ninety five right? maybe yeah, 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 something yeah. like that. Um, and so one of the things that is interesting about her is she reminds me of a of a person who um, Brian Williams when he did work as a war correspondent. Yeah, which should be enough, right? You know, I was a war correspondent. Is, it, uh, believe me, I was when I was in Iraq. I was around some of these war correspondents who were sometimes almost suicidally brave. Yeah. Um, if you say I was a war correspondent, I was in Desert Storm, or or uh, was it uh, the early early part of the Iraq invasion? I forget which. But that's enough. Yeah. But then to say you know my helicopter was forced down and all that, you don't need that extra. Right. It's sort of you know the the. When you see people engage in sort of puffery of an already pretty impressive resume, yeah. you say, "What? what's going on? And with her, she's got an already pretty impressive resume, but it's like consistently, but no, I was this version of intersectional heroic. No, actually, you weren't. OK, wait, I was this version. Right. And how many times are you going to say this where it sort of gets debunked um, before you realize this this person has just a problem with puffery? Well, she's still telling the story, which our friends at the
0: Free Beacon blew up, that she was fired for being visibly pregnant as a school teacher, and it's just, it's just, it's just not true. Well, um, which caused mean, John Podesta to call
2: her Pregnahontas." <laughs> <laughs> the most charitable explanation you can have is that it did happen, but she never talked about it before, and it wasn't documented in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, which is sort of nobody, the elite media would never give. A conservative, the benefit of the doubt on right. that, and I don't care how many people came out of the woodwork and said, "Oh yeah, at that school, I was at that school, and it happened to me." That they would then say, "Well, then, well, look, it proved it happened to Elizabeth Warren." Yeah, I mean, this is a person who's never been shy about her tale of, I mean, she's and she's even fabricated stuff in the past to sort of enhance her tale of of personal heroism and and you know grit and determination. And and yet she never really brought this up before. Yeah, um, it just doesn't pass the smell. So
0: this. I go back and forth on this. You know, there's always this temptation to say um, that Trump stuff has given the Democrats a permission structure to sort of do Trumpy things too, right? And yeah. um, you know, I wrote a comment about this where I quoted you about you know the Elizabeth Warren stuff where. I mean she's literally campaigning like the, the 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 three or four legs of her you know major planks of her platform are either unconstitutional or illegal or impossible, impossible. or
2: all three yeah. right you know Oh yeah and like how dare you say that why would you run for office to say I can't you run for office to <laughs> but, say you
0: But like Donald Trump like we know why he doesn't care about the constitutional stuff. And we know why he embellishes and exaggerates and lies and all these kinds of things. And it's all because he doesn't know better, right? I mean, it's just like his, it's, it's all lizard brain driving things. And Elizabeth Warren is like a, is a Harvard lawyer, you know, serious person. And she is promising things that are actually, like Trump violates constitutional norms and values a lot, you know, and rhetoric. Yeah. But he actually hasn't like violated the Constitution all that much, yeah. right? And She's literally hinging her entire campaign on – and so is Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke. I mean there are a bunch of them. The Democratic Party has – I just find this disconnect between their criticism of Trump of being sort of antithetical to the Constitution while these people who do not have the excuses that Trump has are embracing anti- and constitutional policies every which way – And the only thing that worries me is that, like, conservatives who complain about it, it's very difficult to do in the Trump
2: era, you know? Um, Anyway, I just – I find it's a a weird Gordian knot, and I haven't figured out how to deal with it. Well, and what ends up happening is you have this sort of thing where Trump apologists will call out Elizabeth Warren on this, and they have no standing to do it. Right. So all that the Warren people have to say is, well, what about the emergency declaration? What about – and, you know, so everyone's whatabouting at each other relentlessly. And, but I I think I think the Native American stuff is much more important than a ele- that the the media wants to sort of push this aside. But I, I really think this is an important insight here because look, I was a law student in the early 1990s. She came to HLS when I was a 2L. That school was in the middle of a massive. Controversy over the fact that it had no women of color members of the faculty. Mm. Um, a leading professor had just essentially exiled himself in protest. There were consistent protests on campus, occupation of administration buildings. When I was a one L, uh, the the four white guys got uh, tenure offers, and the campus after a uh, African American woman had not received a tenure offer, I believe the year before, and the place just. Melted down. Anybody who was there from 91 to 94, like I was, or 90 to 93 or in that range, knows the place was a – was people were at each other's throats. There was a, an article, I think, GQ or Esquire back in the early 90s. You can Google it and find it called Beirut on the Charles, mm-hmm. talking about Harvard Law School at the time. And so in comes Elizabeth Warren with a biography of being a Native American. And she Knows what that she knew what that meant. You cannot, in any way, shape, or form, um, be a sentient law professor in the late eighties and early nineties and not know what it meant to list yourself in a directory as a Native American. Yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you look at that, and and then Harvard's. Oh, it had nothing to. You know, her 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 professed ethnic identity had nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, right, and. And so what I feel like that established – what we have here is a pattern of really blatant opportunism. And she has seen an opportunity in the Democratic Party to sort of lock down this sort of woke uh, space that Bernie Sanders really created in 2016, which is one of the reasons why a lot of Sanders people really don't like her. Yeah, And lock this down. And one of the ways you lock this down right now is by just – out, um, you know, by just sort of having the plan that is more ambitious than anybody else's plan, and then sort of from the commanding heights of your fabricated moral superiority, sneering at everyone else yeah. for being not, you know, not having enough ambition for the American people. And then if she gets the nomination, mark my words, unless the polls are ten points apart, unless she feels like she's just sailing through. She's so opportunistic. She's not going to let anything—a little thing like all of the plans she's previously announced—to keep her from the White House. Yeah, 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 yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, so Moalethy was on here, who's former DNC spokesman, and um, um, he's now at Georgetown. He's a good guy and um, Hillary guy, and he makes the case that the way to un, that you know, there's there's this fight among Democrats about whether the old model of running to the left in the primaries and to the center and the general, whether well, that's dead, right? right? And there's a lot of reason to think. I mean, like Obama never ran to the center in 2008 because his strategy was to change the composition, the demographic composition of the electorate so that um, he didn't need to do that. And in fact, doing that would have been a problem because what right. he was trying to do was activate more young people and minorities. Yeah. And that's what Ted Cruz wanted to do. Remember, he was going to activate 10 million uh, white rural voters who had just tuned out politics, and it turned out Trump did it. Yeah. And um, and so the theory is, is that Elizabeth Warren's going to be able to do that, or that Kamala Harris or Beto or whatever. I mean, Beto, what a sad figure <laughs> Beto is. But um, um, I just don't. I get it. I get the argument. I think it's bad for the country that this is the operating model for both parties now, but I have a hard time believing that she has the ability to fire up Democrats the way Obama could or even the way Hillary could in a weird way, you know, and – you know, there was, I mentioned it on this podcast before, but there was this great piece in the New York Times about how, you know, because she's desperate to win over black voters. Yeah. And of course, this historically black college in South Carolina and they printed up all these signs that say, you know, black issues or American issues and all these kinds of stuff. And the idea was to have this great shot as she walks out on stage, to the sea of black faces in the audience. She walks out on stage and it's basically all white people. Because <laughs> <laughs> she just is not attractive for whatever reason. Yeah to the African-American vote, at least not yet. And um, so I don't know. I just don't, I don't, I I still think that she is more beatable than, also because I just meet so many people who say I can't vote for
2: Trump unless it's Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. I mean, I think the Democrats, the basic dynamic, what 2018, if the Democrats keep their 2018 coalition together, they just win. Yeah. And the 2018 coalition, yeah, they activated the urban voter, but those were in, those were places where Democrats win anyway. 2018 was the great suburban wipeout right. of Republicans. And the question – you know, I, I, if you're saying, OK, behind door number one is to reactivate the Obama coalition in America's cities such as Philadelphia or Detroit or Milwaukee, if that's behind door number one as a strategy, it would seem to me that nominating somebody who had that incredibly uh, powerful appeal to black voters would be – one of the ways to do it, yeah, 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 and I, I just don't see that as Elizabeth Warren. Um, then the, the door number two, and that's where that's sort of the no compromise progressive vision of win. You just turn out people in Philly, Detroit, and Milwaukee, and the same numbers that that Obama did in 2012. You win this thing, and that, and and just win over just a few disaffected white working class voters. You win without compromise. Yeah. Okay, that could work. I mean, it could work. I mean, there, the. You know that you were talking about who who mobilizes voters. Maybe Trump mobilizes voters, right. for or the Democrats. It, so it could absolutely work. You know, another model that says, "Hey, we had a recent election; it just happened, where we wiped out the Republicans and their former and many of their former suburban strongholds. And how about we not nominate somebody who is going to take a middle class family and and say?" what i vow to do to you is to raise your taxes and eliminate the health insurance you like right that seems to me uh, unnecessarily risky on the part of the democrats yeah and and for the sake of a, a policy that wouldn't even get enacted anyway like that's not happening absent some sort of massive recession or trump meltdown that's so obvious so close to the election that it triggers some sort of wave that nobody is currently anticipating yeah. so you know that's that's what's so puzzling to me is the democrats are sort of opening this vulnerability for the sake of essentially virtue signaling a series of policies and I hate to overuse the term virtue signaling, but when you're when you're signifying that you're going to put into place a policy you know you can't put into place, right. it's sort of doing it from the standpoint of saying this is what kind of person I am. Right. That's almost like textbook.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's also it also smacks to me of sort of the way Kings of different faiths would pronounce on obscure issues of theology that are unprovable in this life, <laughs> as a way to sort of get to rally populations. I mean, the th- you literally need to if you confiscated. Everyone's talking about about Elizabeth Warren's, you know, two cents above your first fifty million dollars ta- wealth tax. It's going to pay for. She must spend that money ten times over, right? And. The thing is, as Brian Riedel pointed out on this podcast a long time ago, uh, you could literally confiscate all of the wealth of the top one percent and it wouldn't come close to paying for the green New Deal and so and right. Medicare for all and by the way, the wealth tax is almost certainly unconstitutional, and it's also probably unconstitutional mm-hmm. and she has no excuse to propose I mean like again, Trump has an excuse um I hate to excuse him for it, but it's it, at least there's an explanation that it's you, that, can, yeah. you know. Um, Ignorance is not an excuse, it's an explanation. Right, yeah. right, right. And that's one of my big complaints about our culture is that we confuse explanations and excuses. Yeah. Um, all right, so this is going to be around for a million years, this topic about the primaries and all that. Um, we're running along on time.
2: Uh, did you see The Joker? I did see The Joker. What did you think? Okay, so it was a movie that in the moment I thought two things at once. This is a pretty... Amazing work of cinematic art. Yeah, and I'm not having fun. Yes, I think that <laughs> I think that is the correct take. Yeah, yeah. Uh, after it was it, I, after I slept on it, I thought it looked. I I liked it better. Yeah, uh, just because I kind of appreciated the the Joaquin Phoenix performance more. I appreciated the the the, and I don't want to spoil any part of the ending, but I appreciated how the ending made me question what was real and wasn't real, mm-hmm. and um. And, you know, again, the Joaquin Phoenix performance was – what I liked about it, he wasn't trying to be Heath Ledger. Right. It was a totally different version of Joker. You just take the Heath Ledger perform – and in a a way, it was almost like I'm putting the Heath Ledger performance in the history books as that's just – that's his. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to try to do that. Nobody will ever do that. Let's leave that for Heath Ledger and I'm going to do this whole other Joker. Yeah, and and that's what made it, I think, so impressive. It was just a whole other joker. But man. It... It's a grim movie. Whoa. Yeah. And so I mean I think I talked about this briefly with Jack before, but
0: um you ever watch a TV series, Gotham? It just I've parachuted in it. And... Yeah, it's really not bad. Yeah. Um I mean it's it's you know, it's, I'm not shocked, it never won any Emmys. Yeah. But um, but uh uh they have a lot of ambiguity about who the real Joker is mm-hmm. and they're all these characters you think are gonna be the Joker and it turns out they're no, they're an inspiration for the person who turns out yeah. to be the Joker. I kind of feel like and I'm hanging this on very little, but the movie Joker, the the Joaquin Phoenix Joker, he's not the Joker. He's just Joker. Yeah. And I kind of feel like if they're gonna develop this storyline, that he ends up be, that the Joaquin Phoenix character ends up being the inspiration for the actual Joker because the age mismatch between Bruce yes. Wayne and the Joker is a problem. Yes. And the fact that this guy has zero fighting skills. Yes. And, you know, like, there was always something about the, like, the Heath Ledger Joker that was, or the comic books Joker, that there was, there was some hint I always thought that, like, he had a certain amount of immunity to pain or something yeah. like that. There's nothing that's going on there about that. And he's, this is actually not even that good an athlete. He's just no. like, you know, so it, there's a, there are problems with it. But it was, you know, it, Pod, John Podora, he says it's a the movie's a mix between the King of Comedy, which you ever, have you ever seen? Mm-mm. Another very dark movie. Very good, but very dark movie. Yeah. Where Robert De Niro basically plays the Joker character. Right, right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, um, and Taxi Driver. Yeah. It really was about 1970s New York. This was yeah. not Gotham. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was interesting. I'm glad I saw it. I was impressed by it. It kind of remind you ever see the master that that movie about Scientology that they couldn't really yes. say it was about Scientology. Yes, it reminded me a little
2: bit of that. Um Ultimately, it's just not a fun time at the movies. No, no, no. It was. I felt like I was sort of like taking my medicine. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I need to see this, and I'm. It doesn't taste that great, but no, it and and that's poor sell for the movie. But the the thing is. I actually think you kind of want to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As it, you kind of want to see it. And, and another, I mean, it's almost made three quarters of a billion dollars yeah. at the box. The
0: question box. Is, do you want to see it again? Like, I like, I think people really need to see Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. There are very few movies that I think were as good as Schindler's List
2: was that I really never want to see again. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I also think this is a movie for like, if you're going to want to see it, if you're kind of a comic book nerd. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because you've. You sort of have to see an iteration of the Joker, and as iterations of Joker go, this one is really compelling and captivating. Yeah. But I agree with you. I, I, the whole time in the movie, I was sitting there thinking, as it unfolded, this guy isn't the Joker. Right. This guy's
0: a he, Joker. A Joker. <laughs> yeah. He's the
2: inspiration. Yeah. I can't imagine him leading anything. Yeah. And and, you know, you kind of see him as a he's like a witness to the sensation that he created, not a leader of. And and um, again, at the, at the very end, it leaves it, you know, you're very ambiguous and uh, as to what's real and what's not real. And and I I thought it was really well done. But I'm with you. I think when the when they reboot Batman again, it's not going to be what, 60-year-old Joaquin? <laughs> yeah, yeah just, there's, something, there's a problem there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Can I weigh in here? Because I saw it this weekend. Oh, you did? Okay, good. Yeah. I was disgusted by it. <laughs> I, I, I hope I never see that again, and I don't. I would not recommend it to anyone. It was just, ugh. I mean, it, I will not deny that it was competently made, I guess, from a technical standpoint, uh, but there are just so many things about it that, Drove me. By the end of it, I was just wanting to get out of the theater. Yeah. Um. And then uh, too many things about it that really sort of detract from the movie if you spend like five seconds thinking about it. And that's excusable for like Aquaman or something, which is just (laughs) eye candy. Excusable (laughs) for Aquaman. It's got a giant squid in it and Atlantis, and those are two things that will allow me to enjoy any movie. Yeah. But there are neither of those things are in Joker, so I can. (laughs) Um. The unreality of it. Let's. I want to focus on that for a bit because we have we. It's established very early on, while while the character is still on his meds, that he is prone to fantasy. Right. We have him imagining himself on the show back before he's um, before homicidal. he yeah, and and before he becomes a homicidal. So should maniac. we
2: issue a spoiler alert right now?
1: Um, I mean, I'll I'll throw in the the alarm. Okay, <laughs> uh, we have an alarm for this. Uh, it will be it'll people will hear it. Um, <coughs> so we see him imagining himself on the show early, and it's in a more like wholesome way, I guess, or whole, to the extent this character can, can be wholesome at all. And then at the end, um, when he's on the show, he says that what's happening is exactly how he imagined it would be, and then things go like. Ex- exactly as he wanted them to go in his now like corrupted, perverted state, mm-hmm. and uh, then he like has an extended conversation with a talk show host who is speaking to a confessed murderer, and no one around. Uh, He's trying to arrest him. Yeah, the, the producer who is already skeptical of this to begin with is just kind of like, OK, I guess I'll just let this keep going. It's good TV. I mean, is that supposed to be a network reference maybe? Well,
2: see, that I thought – I'm going to disagree with you here. And okay. thank you for pointing out the amorality of my continued Frenchism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the uh, I thought the whole last sequence from the confession through to where he uh, is in the cop car – and yeah. the, the ambulance so this is well after the spoiler alarm, the ambulance brought uh, blindsides the cop car. Yeah. He's lovingly carried out and put on the hood by the Jokerites mm-hmm. and then stands in front of them in the sort of Christ pose as they cheer. I interpreted all of that as fiction.
1: Oh yeah. Okay. No, I I was I was sort of getting to that. Yeah. The unreality of the like implausibilities of that interview made me think that it was fake. And that everything up, everything at there was also unreal, and so if all, of, if like, so the the fact also that his girlfriend was not was not really his girlfriend at all, uh, it just makes me wonder like how much of this movie was entirely in his head because the whole transformation into the Joker really starts when he goes off of his meds, uh, and so like uh, up to the and even before that point he's already imagining things. So if the whole movie was fake, if it's all just some Paranoid uh, schizophrenic delusion.
0: There's a movie called Jacob's Ladder. Oh, oh, yeah, I, with I, yeah, 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 which yeah. I have never. I, I that I was so angry at that movie because I loved where it was going. Yeah, until it all turned out to be like Walter Mitty on acid stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that really made me angry. Yeah,
1: I guess bad acid from Woodstock, not just any old <laughs> yeah, acid. I,
0: I think the um. I found all of that stuff that you guys are talking about more forgivable because we are talking about a comic book movie.
1: Yeah. But not um, really. I mean it could – Well, that's, no, the, I, that's see, the interesting I, thing
0: about it is it could, not, it could easily have not been a comic book movie because of the taxi driver element yeah. of it. If they couldn't get the rights to the Joker, they would just call it clown. Yeah. You could just make the exact same movie with no Bruce Wayne.
2: Yeah. You know. Um, I thought it was intriguing. I thought that whole element was intriguing because the way I interpreted it was he, he – Commits the actual murders, which are modeled after the the Bernard Getz right. incident in this in New York, and he so he commits these actual murders. It creates upheaval in the city. People are wearing the masks, and then as he is sort of drifting out into lunacy, I, I it's open question whether or not he murdered the De Niro character. Yeah. Or whether he was caught by the cops in this, you know, as he's leaving his apartment and that's it. And we flash back to reality when he's being questioned in the Arkham Asylum. Yeah. Where everything in between didn't happen. But I do think elements of it happened, the riot and and the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. Also, because it's made
0: three quarters of a billion dollars, a lot of it happened because they need to have a sequel. Yeah.
2: (laughs) You do not have a uh, one-off when it's three quarters. Well,
1: I I don't think – Joaquin Phoenix is a weird actor. And I think he is the sort of actor who would just not –
0: He might not do it again, even for any amount of money.
1: Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's why he's he's sort of signed on to begin with. Yeah. And I know that what you say about every man has his price, but like, Joaquin Phoenix basically faked his own career's uh, end for the sake of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, I know. He's a a weird cat. I
0: agree. Um, But uh, I just got a text. I actually got a text five minutes ago. Steve (laughs) Hayes is waiting upstairs for me and David to go to lunch. So we are going to just nip this in the bud here. David, can't tell you how delighted we are that you have joined the dispatch. Well, I am
2: thrilled. and I cannot wait to get rolling.
0: We, are, um, we, have, we, have, we have big and bold and exciting plans for you, and um, we would really love it if people could sign up at the dispatch for everything is free for the time being. Um, we're going to have some uh, David Frenchian wares coming down the pike uh, f- in fairly short order. Uh, You don't want to miss any of them, and we are ramping up the morning dispatch to, I think, five days a week pretty soon, and the G-File is going to be more frequent, um, although we haven't (coughs) quite figured out the schedule there. And uh, you can um, follow us on Twitter at at The Dispatch or at uh, Jonah Remnant for this this fully functional podcast. And uh, thanks again to David, thanks again to everybody, and I'll see you next time. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That to segue into real stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, it works. Forget about my
1: horror idea.
0: Okay, that's right. That, was, that well, that will set up the French Amari stuff. Well, <laughs> right. We recording. Uh-huh. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast, which is. Uh, all right, let me do that again.